I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you all for coming. Uh... And uh, I'm, I'm very lucky to have the chance to talk to, um, to Sheila Fitzpatrick, who has just escaped from Australia um, <laughs> after several years of, uh, of exile. Um, and I, 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 I want to talk a little bit about Sheila, um, but I haven't cleared the, uh, the bio with her. So if you just you know, stop me if I get anything wrong. Um, born and raised in Melbourne, uh, showed childhood promise as a violinist which led to university studies in history and music, which led to studies in Soviet music, which led to her life's work, the study of the, of the Soviet Union. And just in parenthesis, in this short book, there is a lot of lovely detail about Soviet musical culture. It really deserves its own playlist, this book. <laughs> um, while at Oxford in 1966, uh, Sheila made her first trip to the USSR, to what sounds from your book like swinging Moscow, really. Um, I can't say the rest is history because you've done so much else, but Sheila is one of the indispensable historians of the 20th century, which the Soviet Union did so much to define. She's written more than a dozen books of history and memoir and, and more articles than I, I have power to count. And in her writing, without ever diminishing the brutal and the grotesque, um, I think you stand for an idea of history that foregrounds the daily joys, the sorrows, the pleasures, the quirks, the vexations of individual Soviet citizens, rather than the popular Western stereotype of the USSR as this grinding totalitarian machine where people lived and breathed misery from, uh, from waking to sleeping. Um, this is a wonderful book, and much of your work has been about the granular close-up detail of Soviet life and history. So what made you decide to pull back your lens and, and pan across the whole vast story and in one long take? <laughs> well, I hate to say it, but I was commissioned. <laughs> apart, well, it wasn't directly a commission to do what I did. Uh, a publisher, an Australian publisher, uh, said to me, uh, they have a, a series called The Shortest History of Everything. Uh, and uh, he said, will you do the shortest history of Russia? And I thought, no, I couldn't possibly do that. That has no shape to me. You know, I don't, I don't, I, I wouldn't know how to do that. But then I thought, 
the Soviet, the shortest history of the Soviet Union would be really interesting to me because, after all, I've been closely with, connected with it all these years, but I've not stepped back to say, well, what was all this about? And nor have I tried to tell its story when it had become a finite story. And that was, for a historian, very interesting to me. It had never occurred to me that it matters if you're writing the history of something that's ended or that something that's ongoing. But when the Soviet Union ended, one suddenly thought this is a different kind of history because it goes from A to B or to A to Z, whatever you want to say. But it, anyway, it's got, it's got a narrative and it's got a beginning and an end. So one tells the story that way. So I, I, that's why I said I'd do it. I mean, I, I wasn't going to, to ask you about this, but I am very interested in it. You were giving me some interesting little details. I mean, you know, usually, um, quite often when somebody's interviewing an author about a book, they say, well, this must have been very hard for you to write. But I think some people might look at this and look at your career and think, this must have been very easy for her to write. She just needs to sit down and kind of unload 200 pages. Um, but I'm sure it wasn't like that. I mean, how much, given how much you already know, how, what was your approach? Did you feel, right, I'm going to do the research for every stage um, as if I didn't know it? Or, I mean, how did you... Oh, no, I didn't do that. Uh, but I, I had a sort of unbalanced uh, bank of knowledge. I, I know the first, up to the war, really, or up to the end of the Stalin period, I know that really well. I've written lots of books on... I mean, every bit of that I, I know fairly well both generally both the political and the social and as well the cultural but and then uh, then we get we get into Khrushchev period which is a bit of a no man's land for me but then I come on the scene in other words I arrive <laughs> this is 1966 and after that I'm an observer and sometimes I even felt like a participant observer because I would go often over all that time. So that, but that's a totally different basis of knowledge than research knowledge. So what I said to myself is I've got to get myself up to speed on basically 60s on, uh, on the, the, the literature, not, not just my memories of what it was like, but the, uh, uh, the literature. And in particular, I thought I really have to read uh, up on nationalities, because almost all my work has been Russia-focused. Even when the subject is broader, like, let's say, uh, Stalin's peasants, you know, it's Stalin's Russian peasants, basically. Uh, and it probably couldn't have been otherwise. Well, anyway, I won't launch into a defense of why it is like that, but it is like that. Therefore, I had to read, um, had to read up on nationalities, so I read everything I could find on nationalities. And I did something I've never done before. There is a, a Russian a journal that came out of Russia, young Russian, post-Soviet Russia, called Abimperio, in Russian, on nationalities. I read 20 years of Abimperio. Uh, it was available online. This is COVID lockdown. Uh, <laughs> so that's what I did. Well, um, I, I want to read this uh, quotation, which has rather jumped out at me from your book. Um, this is from the passage about Stalin's funeral in 1953. Um, the funeral was marred by a stampede of people pouring onto the Moscow streets, hoping for a last sighting of the leader or just curious. Typical of the serendipitous quality of Soviet history, it was not a crowd of protesters or even worshippers. It was more like a crowd in search of a meaning. But people were trampled to death in the crush. The word serendipitous 
and the phrase a crowd in search of meaning, it all seems to conjure up the idea of a story that could have gone a completely different way if small details had changed. Uh, and the two obvious things that leap out to me um, are uh, how important Stalin as a unique individual was to, to the nature of the Soviet Union and the survival of the Soviet Union, um, and whether it would have, um, have been possible for Gorbachev to have saved the USSR if he had done something different. <laughs> well, that's serendipitous. That is, of course, one of my themes, partly because I don't, if you remember back, everybody was extremely surprised by the collapse of the Soviet Union. And when I started looking at the, the, at the history as a whole, I thought there was also reason to be surprised about the uh, establishment of the Soviet Union, or rather the success of the revolution. Uh, that was a, a, a very iffy thing. A close thing. run thing. Yeah. So I wanted, I wanted to keep that sense that surprise is important, that serendipitous uh, is important. Uh, and actually, not just in Soviet history. I think historical explanation always tends, by its nature, it, te it tends to convey that things had to happen. You know, I'm telling you why it happened, and that ha carries the implication it had to happen like that. Now, I don't think this is right. I mean, I, I, in other words, I think it's not peculiar to the Soviet Union uh, that uh, things are not predictable because I basically see history as a chaotic system. It means there's regularities, but there's no possibility of prediction. Now, with regard to the Soviet Union, however, that question of serendipitousness acquires an added, what would one say, piquancy, I guess, because the Soviets themselves were so keen on saying that everything is according to, to, to law. You know, we can predict, we know the Marxist laws of history, therefore we know what's going to happen, zakonomiernost, uh, for anybody who knows Russian, uh, and Slutchinist, accidental things, it happens, but um, it happens accidentally, it's not important. So there's, there's a, a certain pleasure in writing the history of the Soviet Union and playing off that sense that they've got it all under control against the fact that it is uh, uh, so often clear that uh, they absolutely don't have it under control and that serendipitous, serendipity, I guess is the noun, is hitting them from every direction. I mean, um, you, you explicitly talk about Gorbachev's choices um, and how uh, Deng Xiaoping apparently was said that Gorbachev was a fool because he attempted mm -hmm. political reform, glasnost, before um, economic reform, mm -hmm. perestroika. I mean, you then went on to say that there were reasons why Gorbachev did this, but that doesn't mean that he couldn't have, in theory, have gone down well, the Chinese route. Of course, he would have needed, have he, but he would have needed to have an economic reform program. Right. And he didn't, it seems to me. Uh, and because he didn't, and because he felt uh, that reform is needed, his logical progression was that then we have to have a discussion about what kind of reform is appropriate, which means discussion, uh, glassness has to come before perestroika. But... I'm, I'm probably inclined to agree with that Deng Xiaoping um, comment that it's not the right way to do it because you open everything up for discussion and everything goes every which way, basically. It gets out of control. You don't 
uh, I mean, as it very clearly did with him, it was, of course, fascinating to be around then. I mean, of all the times that I was going to the Soviet Union, the, I think by far the most exciting were those, uh, the, the years 88, 89, uh, when the press, it didn't matter what journal or newspaper you bought, was full of incredibly interesting stuff. That, but of course, a lot of that was also very dispiriting mm. to Russians because, I mean, ordinary Russians with a with a, with a sense, uh, of, you know, thinking their country is okay and hoping it's okay, uh, and this was really rubbing your nose if you're a Russian in in how much it hadn't been okay, what awful things had happened in the past, so that that too, I mean, is a deal. You know, the delegitimizing is a complex process, but that's a part of it, I think. And what about the, the Stalin question? Um, I mean, he was famous for his dictum, uh, if there's no person, there's no problem. Uh, what if there had been no Stalin? Um, would everything have been different or would a Stalin-like person have come along? I mean, I, I have sometimes speculated, and I know this is quite tedious for a historian to talk about counterfactuals, but I just do wonder how important the personal factor was in this, this um, seemingly quite pyramidal um, system um, that at certain points he was able to apply a particular force of will and ruthlessness which on the one hand led to slavery um, and, and brutality but on the other hand did create this kind of industrial hinterland without which um, uh, the Nazis might have won the war. Mm -hmm. I cannot imagine an outcome which didn't have an authoritarian person, single person, at the head of the Politburo. Now, I do emphasize that the Politburo was there too. I mean, there has to be a reason that Stalin met with it every day uh, for several hours. You know, there's some, that, that is a real sort of collectivity behind him. But so then the question is, if there's, got, there's going to be some kind of authoritarian personality, but is it going to be like Stalin? Is it going to be prepared to take that degree of, uh, is it so ruthless? Is it going to be so so indifferent uh, to loss of life? And then I suppose you have to start talking people, don't you? I mean, you have to say, okay, well, Bukharin was a more humane person, probably, most of the time. He was a, he was a bit erratic. Uh, but does that mean, therefore, that if he had been the one who won, which would have been a, an unlikely outcome in 1930, but never mind, let's suppose he's the one who wins, uh, does does it mean that he wouldn't have been tough enough and he would have been out? Or does it mean that the position would have toughened him up? When the Soviet Union collapsed, I think a lot of people, including some who should have known better, uh, conceptualized it as this homogenous tyranny that was sort of switched on in 1917 and then switched off again in 1991 in this pure and unambiguous act of self-liberation. Um, and one of the great things about your book is that it shows how incredibly heterogeneous the nature of Soviet politics was during this time. The way that um, in the midst of what seemed from the outside to be this very rigid um, repressive system, there was this sort of ferment of, of new ideas and different alternative ways of doing things, uh, alternative economic plans would kind of rise up. And it's particularly striking this moment you talk about in uh, 1953, after the death of Stalin, and I, I mean, I felt 
I, I felt so foolish when I was reading this because you, you, you said what the, uh, the conventional view was. And I thought, oh, yes, that's what I thought. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Stalin died and Khrushchev came along and, um, and the thaw and, and that was that. Um, but there was four years or three years, mm -hmm. four years um, between Stalin's death and Khrushchev becoming yeah. the, the prime leader. Um, of collective leadership. And not only that, but it turned out, and you hint very strongly about this, although you have no proof, it turned out that secretly all the other members of the Politburo had just been waiting for um, Stalin to shuffle off. And, well, and they, they had a, a ready-made, oven-ready, as Boris Johnson would say, <laughs> um, uh, economic plan to well, there completely is a, change yeah. the country. Well, this, this is something that absolutely fascinated me when I was writing on Stalin's team. So we come to Stalin's uh, death, and this was something that at the time I didn't know very well. And then at a certain point along the way, and I didn't have a sense of when that was, comes reform. But I too, I think, thought, I accepted the notion that it's Khrushchev. I was astonished when I found that Stalin's old cronies, regarded as hacks, despised having been with him, being kicked around and so on, uh, for 20 years, first of all, Come his death, uh, they meet even before he has died and appoint a new government in his office. Quiet, you know, in a quiet sort of organized manner. So that's the first thing that they know how to they know how to govern without him. Because there's been both Politburo and Stalin. They, 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 they have no problem about procedures. But then the second thing is what do they do? They do reform across the board. You name it, they, 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 they uh, you know, nationalities, consumer goods, taxes on peasants, everything. Now, this is where the come without proof, as you said, uh, I, I say it, it, it seems, I mean, it's just incredible that, that they launch these programs. And by the way, Stalin's name disappears from the newspapers immediately, which I had had no sense of. So they launch this stuff more or less immediately. Uh, with Beria taking the lead, but nevertheless, the rest of them are in, the, in there. So what does this mean? I mean, does it mean that there was some kind of consensus among them of what needed to be done but couldn't be done in the last years because of the old man? Is, is that what it is? That's hard in a way to imagine because, after all, they were under a lot of surveillance. Well, an unspoken consensus is, I suppose, not so hard, but, uh, but that they spoke it is unlikely. Anyway, I got quite worried about this question and I talked to, I mean, I was worried about, you know, absence of proof isn't, isn't good enough quite, uh, really. So I, I uh, but on the other hand, I couldn't think where I could go because I couldn't, I didn't have access to, to um, KGB equivalent files. So I couldn't see what the KGB had been reporting on that. So I asked someone who worked in the Central Party archives and, and who had access to a lot of material, a Russian who worked there, you know, is there stuff that would make what I've written here untenable in there? Now, he said no. He said basically there's, well, basically he said there's nothing. Therefore, I feel a bit better about my absence of proof because that, <laughs> perhaps there really is it no seems, proof. <laughs> it, seems, it seems very plausible. I mean, I, I remember kind of being confused when, as, as a young man, I, I moved to um, the former Soviet Union in the 1990s uh, and lived in, in Ukraine and Russia. And, and 
outside a very small group of people, there wasn't really the sense of, of being liberated and being free. And gradually I came to realize that for most people, especially older people, they had already had that back in the in a much earlier stage, mm -hmm. either the 50s or the 60s. I mean, you, you kind of, you don't put it quite like this, but you basically describe a period from the mid 50s to the early 70s, mm -hmm. when for a large number of people, uh, life was good uh, and getting better. Yes, not getting better quite as fast as you would hope. No. But getting better, yes, yes. And, and above, of course, life also was, um, was stable. Yes. And that, if you, if you think of what's come before, that's got considerable importance, that there, there hadn't been any upheaval, nothing terrible had happened for about 20 years. That's uh, almost unprecedented. When I was growing up, when I, when I was in my 20s, in, in my teens, um, and, and the Soviet Union was there, this thing, this concept, um, and I wasn't, I wasn't studying it, I, I didn't speak Russian then, um, but you know, it was kind of a presence uh, and there were certain things about it that were salient. One, that it was this um, military superpower, but the other was that it, this was the place where they did economics in a completely different way. They ran um, their society in a way that was absolutely different from ours. And now that has been, that has been removed. There, is, there are only variations now of capitalism. Um, and I do sometimes wonder whether, you know, as, as people who kind of lived through that time, age and, and go, how the Soviet Union will actually be remembered by, in a sort of folk sense, will people just forget that it was this alternative economic system, this completely different way of, of doing things that was, no matter how badly it worked, a standing challenge to capitalism? Um, and will people just remember the the funny hats and the red stars and the uh, and the and the missiles and and this kind of vague sense of of dread and ominousness? I think they remember, or at least at the moment, still they seem to remember the welfare state aspect, which were best under Brezhnev. I mean, they're always I'm conceptual. Talking, sorry, I'm, I, I, I'm talking about people outside the Soviet Union. Oh, outside the Soviet Union. Okay, let, let, <laughs> say it again then, let me address that question first. The, the, the idea that, that as time goes on, people will forget that the Soviet Union was more than simply this, this military um, authoritarian uh, superpower, that it was also a complete economic alternative to the capitalist way mm -hmm. of doing things. Um, and thus, no matter how badly it worked, it was, it was a challenge to capitalism. Uh, yes, it, I've, uh, no, I would think that they, I mean, people forget almost everything, don't they? <laughs> I would think there would be no problem in forgetting that, in particular, because the, the sort of generalization, well, anyway, it failed, mm -hmm. is on top of that. Therefore, whatever it was, one probably wouldn't put it in such big terms as alternative to capitalism, but they did things in a bad centralized way, I think, maybe some vague impression like that, and so, and so it collapsed. That's what I think. I mean, I'm not off, that is not my interpretation of the collapse of the Soviet Union, but I think that's how it might remain in, if there's a sort of popular Western memory one could speak of. There's a, um, a tantalizing moment in the book where you talk about objections from the Ukrainian part of the Soviet Union to the way the patriotic pr propaganda in response to the Nazi invasion was keyed to Russian history, as if the Soviet Union was, was Russia in another form. 
the official Soviet propaganda started talking about Russian history and mm -hmm. Alexander Nevsky. Uh, and I mean, you, you don't kind of go further down that, that route. But um, I, was, I was intrigued to see that at the time, the Ukrainians said, well, you're kind of, you're pushing us out of this, what is supposed to be the common Soviet history. But, yeah. um, and in your final chapter, you seem to, to some extent, go along with the idea that Russia was the Soviet Union's successor. But you also point out that the prime force behind the Soviet Union's destruction was, was Russia itself. Um, and you also make the point quite a few times that at the point when the Soviet Union collapsed, Russia was only half of it, population-wise. Um, so I suppose I'm, I'm just interested in how we relate the Soviet Union to Russia and to the other, to the other countries, mm -hmm. because they have their, in theory, they have their own um, idea of, of what the Soviet Union was, which is just as valid um, as, as the Russians' idea. Well, it is incredibly complicated trying to think that through because you have so many contradictions. I start off with the Soviet Union, it's the successor state of the Russian Empire, but with the uh, new leaders with a very clear commitment to the notion that theirs is an anti-empire. So what does that mean? It means that the thing you've really got to worry about is Russian nationalism. Other people's nationalisms are within limits acceptable, but Russian is really bad. And so that lasts through the 20s then there is to some degree a recovery of, of you know, where Russians can be sort of proud of themselves. But nevertheless, institutionally, it is still the case that Russia has less, uh, Moscow is of course the capital of both the Russian Republic and, and, and the Soviet Union, but Russia specifically has lacks some of the institutions that the other republics have. Now come the war, and it is presented quite strongly as Russian patriotic thing in, in a line with Alexander Nevsky and whatever. But then you do get a certain degree of, 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 of pushback on that, as you say, from Ukraine. <laughs> that actually comes from a book I reviewed for the LRB, but that's, uh, anyway, for the Ukraine, not only the Ukraine, also mm. Kazakhstan. Uh, and in response to that pushback... We're talking about the 1940s here. Just yes, we're talking about 1940s. Yeah. In response to that mm. pushback, there is a, correct, a corrective Right. Two, uh, the, uh, particularly aimed actually not at Ukraine but at Central Asia, mm. uh, to emphasize how important it is that the other people are fighting also on the, on the Russian side. And then that whole, come the 80s, Russian nationalism in the literary sphere starts to sort of come up a bit, having always been suppressed whenever it showed its head. It starts to come up and not be so much suppressed, but still, not really encouraged. And so you have this complicated history, that, and I'm just telling it with the focus on Russia. Mm. You could tell a complicated history with the focus on Ukraine, on Kazakhstan, on Georgia, you and could. each one would be a bit different. I mean, I sometimes feel that the, uh, the Soviet Union, for the people who live in what used to be it, has, has become a kind of a concept that uh, can mean something very abstract, that can mean all sorts of things. But it, it's, it's used very, very frequently, but, but it means different things. There was a very interesting uh, journal from a, a Ukrainian soldier training just in the past few months. Uh, and he, he had 
uh, sergeants teaching him, who were full of praise for the Soviet Union, how great it used to be, how cheap petrol was, even as they, they despised the Russians. So I, it was, the idea was that the Russians were actually the enemies of the Soviet Union. And as you say in your book, Putin is quite keen on Stalin, does not like Lenin. Right. Isn't that interesting yeah. and surprising? I mean, almost everybody, if they, if they do like Stalin, they almost always like Lenin. The opposite is not true, of course. There are people who like Lenin. But, but Putin seems unique in that he, I, I mean, it makes sense in his terms. I mean, what is Lenin? He's a nation destroyer. He came in and, and, and uh, admittedly, there's a bit of nation building. But I think in Putin's mind, Stal uh, Lenin is a nation destroyer, and then Stalin came along and he is the nation builder. And nation builders are the good people. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So the Soviet Union would have been 100 this year because it was yes. set up in uh, yes, 2022. Yeah. I wonder whether perhaps that was the occasion for your, your book, but uh, serendipity oh. again. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, it would have been 100, but it died before it reached its 70th birthday. Um, unlike Vladimir Putin, um, who was 70 a few days ago. Um, and um, I mean, I, I, I just wanted to, um, to, to read this, this quote um, from the very end of the book. Because the, you were able to get a word in, or at least to mention the, uh, the invasion um, at the end of your, of your last chapter. And uh, you are very clear and um, open throughout the book, at the beginning and at the end, uh, about how, well, to say fail is, is, is not really very fair, but I mean, nobody saw the collapse of the Soviet Union coming. Um, the, the Sovietologists who dedicated their lives to this, the study of this country, um, they, they, they didn't see it coming. Um, and you say, Putin, as a good Soviet citizen schooled in Marxism-Leninism, had no doubt once believed in historical inevitability. Not anymore. Not since that knockout demonstration of the irresistible power of contingency in 1989-91. As he said in an interview in 2000, you know there's a lot that seems impossible and incredible, and then, bang, look what happened to the Soviet Union. Who could have imagined that it would simply collapse? So, spoiler, that's the ending. Um, and a kind of hint there that perhaps Mr. Putin needs to watch out. Um, I wanted to ask, finally, before we get to questions, um, and, and this is a, a little bit personal, so if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine, but um, I was looking at the, the dedications um, to your book. Um, ah, a careful reader. <laughs> I, was very, um, I was very interested in your mentor, um, Mr. Satz, Igor oh. Satz, um, the old Bolshevik. Um, and I wondered whether I might persuade you to talk a bit about, about him and, and how, you, how you met him and, and how he, he helped you to understand oh, yes. that country. Well, this, this is, I, I, I wrote about this in um, Spy in the Archives. 
when I went to the Soviet Union, first I was doing my dissertation, and my dissertation was on the Commissar of Education, Lunacharsky. Uh, so I sought to meet uh, members of the family, uh, which wasn't very easy at that time. Sartz was the brother-in-law, much, much younger. Lunacharsky had married a younger second wife, and, and Sartz was uh, her, her brother. And so I got to him. I uh, managed to get an, in, uh, an, uh, an introduction to him. And he basically adopted me as a, he, he had a habit of adopting waifs and strays. Uh, this is in the 60s. This is the 60s. This is nine, it, it would be January 67 that I knocked on his door, I think. And uh, uh, I described that um, in, in Spy in the Archives because I had this awful, this coat that wasn't warm enough for a, Ru a Russian winter and it was winter. So I was very cold in this coat which was green with gold buttons. And so Igor uh, opens the door to me and he says, how nice, a young woman uh, wearing the uniform of the Tsarist Ministry of Railways. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, but it's not warm enough. We have to find you another coat. And uh, anyway, I felt it was in part the fact that I was ill-prepared for the Russian winter and in general ill-prepared for uh, you know, for my task that led him to take me in and then basically just, well, I suppose, uh, you know, he, he liked talking about the past in a way. Uh, but I think what I, and his take on it was what I would call black comedy. I, I, many, I mean, this is a Russian genre, the, you know, the anecdote and so on. But he had it, uh, it, it, it very strongly. And so I think I absorbed that and, and that in a way that um, is it, you know, a trace of that. There's, there's probably a lot of sites in the book. It's great writing a book without footnotes because <laughs> I can have my own observation without saying where it came from and I can have sites in without saying where it came from. But the other thing about the dedication, I, I dedicated it to, to, to three Sovietologists who died when I, American Sovietologists, when I was writing it. And that was in part because of the writing of it, especially writing on the latter parts, it became a sort of unspoken conversation with them. They are all political scientists. <clears throat> about what they had said at the time was going on, and a, a, a sort of dialogue, a private dialogue with them. And I had my, also a little joke in there because they told me I've got to get 50 illustrations. That's, well, I got half of them after, out of Crocodile, the satirical magazine, because they, they come for free. But then I thought, okay, I'll, I'll find pictures of the people I dedicated it to with notable Russians so that there's an excuse for putting them in. <laughs> so you'll find little photographs of them. I, I said that was the last question, but actually there was one other thing I wanted to ask you. Um, about, and it goes back to, to where I started with the, with the music. Uh, you're talking about, uh, about there's a, there are these little boxes in the, in the book, um, little uh, uh, pull-out bits about various uh, details of Soviet life. And one of them is about, is about jazz. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I was very struck with the story of the, the jazz leader who um, he went band leader who went he was sent to prison and then he he came out 
he was released and he went he went back to to playing and I, I just thought what a, what an amazing story and, and what was that like when he came out of prison and he just got the band back together and I also I mean that was right in the middle it was kind of when the Soviet Union was in its midlife mm-hmm. it was the 1950s and it was like it could have ended there a sort of a happy ending everyone yeah. comes out of the prison camps life is getting better people are getting fridges and cars and houses there's no war you know good place to end uh, and and he he came out. I mean, what what happened to him? Oh, that was uh, well. There's a bunch. I've forgotten. You know those boxes. The the British publisher said, "Write me ten boxes in two weeks." <laughs> so okay, I wrote him ten boxes in two weeks. But it it was a rather rushed um, uh, thing. And I for, was it Eddie Rosner? Yes. Yes. Okay. Exactly. He it, well, he went to Poland. Right. Yeah. So he left with some difficulty, but he he got himself over the border. But there's other jazz people. There's the one who came back from Shanghai. Yes. Uh, who was therefore restricted, a repatriate from this is uh, 55 or so. He's restricted in his movements, but so he's stuck in Kazan, and he is able to get the first secretary of the party in Kazan as a patron. You know, and patronage was all in Soviet life, and so there's Kazan has this terrific big band jazz, and in Moscow they get envious. And so he too got back to Moscow. Now, and he didn't emigrate. So, you know, there are different stories of the jazz. But the, I think, I mean, jazz was terribly popular, including all through the war. But the, li- the lives of the big jazz men tended to go up and down. They were, if you wanted a quiet life, it would be better not to take that path, I think. And that extraordinary story about Yuli Kim, that was... Um... That was very, very moving. Oh, um, yes, yes. I think there's time just for you to tell that story. Well, about the AAML poem. Yes. Well, this was this 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 is one of those <coughs> things that I myself heard. I I, I it was a time that that bards with the their guitar singing songs that they'd written would gather small informal groups and. Um, uh, so he, he, he gathered one. Uh, but he was, he was huge. I mean, he, he became very famous. Yes, yeah, so he became... wasn't that famous at this point, right. I think. Or if he was, I didn't know it. Uh, so this is 67 or 68, one of those two. Uh, so I, I go and he sings, uh, to my great surprise, he sings songs to A.A. A. A. Milne songs, a series of them, not just. Uh, but one of, the one, one of them is the story of, of um, James, James Morrison Morrison whether it be George Dupree, took great care of his mother, though he was only three. And he always told her not to go down to the center of the town without consulting me, but she went. And then it says, uh, uh, James James Morrison's mother hasn't been heard of since. Uh, now that in British terms may read strangely, but you translate it into Russian in that period when the returnees from Gulag were around, it had tremendous impact. And his own mother, and his, but I didn't know that. Yeah, but later on, it turned out that his own mother, when he was, what, seven or something, disappeared one day, hasn't been heard of since. Now she did come back. Yeah. But uh, I think she came back when he was 13, 14. From prison camp. Yeah. yeah. Or exile. I'm not quite exile. sure whether, which of them. But she was basically, she was gone, and then she was back again. I, I think perhaps he was already at university in Moscow by that time. Well, um, Sheila, that was fascinating, and um, I cannot keep you to myself anymore. I've got to throw the floor open to questions. Questions, questions, please, not um, statements. Um, so, um, yes, sir. Yeah, uh, th- thank you very much. I, w- I want to ask you more. You've, you've talked about 
your reaction to the invasion on February the 24th this year. I just want to press you a bit more. I mean, I've been traveling to Russia since Soviet times and studied Russian history, not least from your books. I mean, and you, you've spoken about that dynamic within the Soviet Union between the Russian nation and the other nations. I mean, I, I, I knew all that and I was completely, I'm completely shocked. I'm still completely shocked as everybody who, you know, travels to Russia, Ukraine is. And it, it and one of the ways in which I'm shocked is I feel that I have to go back and rethink the Russian Empire, which kind of obviously then persisted in ways that I certainly didn't think of through the 1920s and through all those things you've spoken about. Something persisted, which, you know, created this monster which jumped out on the 24th of February. So, so just how, how, how that last few months has been for you, really, is my question. Thank you. Well, I was surprised, like everyone. I mean, surprised, shocked, etc. Not that I didn't think that Putin might do something on the, you know, something small, uh, but this wasn't small. Uh, and, I, and I've become more shocked and more alarmed and more distressed and, you know, the, I, I, reaching, I suppose, a climax with this annexation, including territory he doesn't control. I don't I don't understand where that will end. Uh, now, what's pushing him? Uh, you can. Uh, uh, th there are two ways of looking at it. Some people see this as a sort of, you know, it's Peter the Great, it's a Russian expansionism. But you could also see it as uh, that it's a Soviet Union that he has in mind, uh, that he remembers. In other words, a reconstruction of that. It's clear that, uh, I mean, he's often quoted as saying it was the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. He, he didn't accept its legitimacy. It's not so that now that... Perhaps you can say you might say functionally this is the same thing, but I think there is a, at least a nuance whether whether one sees this simply as Russian imperial expansionism, or if one sees it as the reaction of a person who grew up in the Soviet Union and thinks that is the natural thing that there should be a Soviet Union that is run from Moscow. There's a, um, a an interesting map in your book which seems relevant, uh, the map of the borders of the Soviet Union in 1938. Um, and it, it's the 1938 borders of Soviet Ukraine, which uh, Putin seemed originally intent on recreating. Mm. That is the whole of Ukraine, except for the western provinces, um, which were at that point in Poland. Right. Yeah. I'd just like to ask you about the, uh, particularly the Brezhnev chapter and also the conclusion in your book. Um, also going to the travels I did to the Soviet Union in uh, the 1980s, including the, uh, the trip on the Trans-Siberian Railway, is why a highly educated that stage population and uh, an economy that could put men in space really was not able to adapt to providing the sort of consumer durables that uh, a modern urban economy you know, should have provided and mm -hmm. that a population... You know, large cities, um, you know, Moscow was a city of, what, 8 million plus at that time. Um, the sort of consumer goods that people required and wanted. Uh, you know, why was the economy not able to adapt to that? Mm -hmm. Well, it was a, a very strange situation in that they could do some things really well, mm -hmm. as you, you know, space notably. 
uh, and consumer was at the bottom of the list. Well, uh, that I suppose you can trace back to this to Stalin times when you could describe it as policy. Then, uh, in that, the notion was we've got to we've got to develop our industry very quickly, and it's got to be based on heavy industry and defence. And consumer is is, you know, that's icing on the cake that can come later. Uh, so that was the that was the way they got used to doing things, where. You know, the, the, the heavy industry is what gets the priority always. And that means that the ministries and the ministers are the ones with the clout and the ones in light industry don't have any clout. You know, they're almost as bad as minister of education or something or health, you know, as uh, down on the totem pole. But you say didn't get the consumer goods that the uh, society wants. And that is, 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 is both true. And I mean, it's true in a way, but it is also true that there was significant improvement in the supply of consumer goods. I, mean, I started going there in the, um, in the late 60s when there weren't any plastic buckets. I, that was one of the things that impressed me. I mean, there were a lot of things that weren't. Uh, there wasn't plastic, actually. There was uh, plastic bags also uh, unknown at that point. But that was a very different situation from 10 years later and 10 years later again. You know, in other words, the, there, there was improvement. Uh, there was an expansion of what was available and the variety that available, but it obviously was not matching the expectations of the pop of the urban population in particular. You know, I mentioned that trip I did on the Trans-Siberian. I mean, two things I remember about that. But once the uh, level of drunkenness among particularly male passengers, it's not a thing. And also in uh, Moscow at that time, I mean, the amount of male drunkenness was extraordinary. And the genderedness of of drunkenness. I mean, if if you, if you would have, it would have been shocking, would it not? In the uh, in anything right up to the very end, to see a woman on the street who was drunk, I can't remember ever seeing that. But on the other hand, I mean, men on the street drunk, all you know, that was a standard thing. And I actually have, I, I remember it in my student days when I was there, I had gone out to dinner with a Russian boyfriend and he got drunk, uh, really drunk. And so I'm taking him back on the metro and I would have assumed I was not drunk. Uh, but so I'm, I'm a, a, not, a, 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 a sober woman with a drunken man. And I would assume you would get a certain amount of social disapproval. I mean, you, you put this in English terms, people would not, I would expect they were to look at me too with disapproval because I got this drunk man on my hands. No, everybody in the compartment was tremendously sympathetic. They were warm and friendly towards me, much more than if I'd just been myself. And I, that's something I, I, I always had a bit of difficulty understanding that. But, but the, the drinking, which was horrendous, but it was also incredibly gendered. You do talk um, quite a bit about, um, about gender in the, um, in the book and uh, the, the, about um, questions of abortion access in the, in the Soviet Union. That's, that's a, an interesting story, the, the different ways, the debates around abortion um, being banned and then being unbanned um, came up. Um, and, and also the, the lack of contraception. Um, I think it was also true that there weren't actually tampons in in the Soviet Union, that too. Uh, a, a problem, uh, and the fact that that women were expected to work 
that was the extent of their liberation and emancipation. Um, they expected to work and have sex with men, but they were also expected to do all the cooking and the cleaning and the looking after the children. So they, in that sense, um, they weren't very forward-looking. No, no, certainly not. Although one has to say that you had to, things were sort of okay if you had a babushka. In other words, if you, you're a working woman, if you had a mother who would do the shopping and some of the childcare. Uh, yes, well, I, I, I mean, that's the, the, the whole, um, the gender story is, is, is one of those stories about how you can make lovely laws you can you can put everything you can think of into a law which will prevent which will e produce equality, and it actually doesn't happen unless there's a, a cultural change in the society which they were not able to produce. And, and of course, at the end of the Soviet Union, you got the to us rather shocking uh, embrace of the notion of being a housewife on the part of I mean that representing itself as liberation that being seen as a kind of liberation by Russian women. I wanted to follow up a little bit on the, the Brezhnev era because I think that's uh, especially interesting. But can I first of all thank you for all of your books um, and above all for the sense of a lived experience in the Soviet Union that they, they all provide, which I think provides such a good antidote to the prevailing view that we've already referred to um, of the place as a, a, a monolithic, totalitarian, unchanging uh, behemoth, um, and, and I you know, thank you for, for showing us that it wasn't just that. Um, the question I wanted to pursue uh, comes from this issue around the, the Brezhnev era. I think you were about to talk about um, the welfare state under the, the Brezhnev era, and that actually that's remem remembered quite fondly. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yes, well, the welfare state, that's a story that has oddly not you know, I, there, there's not even, uh, there's scarcely a monograph on it. And, in, and yet it's an interesting story because at the beginning, they, you know, it's one of the revolutionary promises, you know, that we're going to provide uh, universal education, universal health care, uh, provision for old age, all these things, of unemployment, all of this we're going to provide. Uh, but then they didn't have the money. And so then they start to say, well, okay, we'll do it for workers. We'll do it for the a few privileged sectors because we can't afford anything more. And so for a long time, the welfare state was up there as a promise, but only a few people were, as it were, fully uh, able to use it, and peasants not at all. So it's only by the Brezhnev period that it, it, it really becomes a universal welfare state. You can say undercapitalized, of course, but when is a welfare state not undercapitalized, basically? Uh, but nevertheless, so uh, functioning perhaps in, uh, at a relatively low level, although not for education. They were really good on education by the end. But nevertheless, that feeling that when there is a, a, a memory that, you know, healthcare was available and uh, education was available no matter if you had the money or not, you know, that is not a a false memory, uh, although it needs a certain degree of qualification. And it was a big shock when it, uh, and especially the way Soviet, uh, there was the general welfare system, but the, an awful lot of benefits you got came out of your enterprise, the place you worked. And with the collapse of the Soviet Union, and there was, uh, suddenly that isn't the case, that was incredibly disorienting for, and upsetting for people. Uh, yes, we have another question here. 
Hi. Um, so quite a lot of the kind of recent historiography focuses on the Soviet Union as an empire rather than a state. Um, and you said you'd read quite a lot of uh, Ab Imperio, which obviously kind of takes a peripheral view and looks kind of into Russia from the outside of the Soviet Union. Um, so I was wondering to what extent empire features as a kind of a key theme in your book and to what extent reconsidering the Soviet Union from the periphery has changed your perspective on Russia's place within it and maybe changed your perspective on your previous work? I thought, I mean, the idea of empire is something that I had to engage with. And I was interested about the whole sort of reaction to that notion because in Sovietology, uh, it had been described, the Soviet Union had been described as an empire uh, really not by the majority of people who worked on things, but come the collapse, everybody suddenly used that term. So it suddenly represents itself as an empire for, the, for understandable reasons, because there was a center whose peripheries peeled off. And those peripheries, I, I think, who all now have to write their national histories, uh, they do conceive of them in terms of imperial victimization of them by the Russians. Now, the perception in Russia tends to be quite different. Uh, and the perception, among other things, is that there was not uh, basically that the, the nationalities, and in here they don't mean Ukraine, they mean Central Asia and so on, they, uh, that they were living off us. In other words, we were subsidizing them. And now that story, chain, that's a different, you know, that's not a steady state throughout, uh, throughout um, Soviet history. But the notion that in the last 20 or 30 years, the net flow of resources was going out from the capital to the periphery rather than in, as at least a Marxist empire ought to do, that seems, I mean, economists seems to feel, seem to feel that, that's, that, that that has some validity. So I think it's complicated. I mean, it, 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 the, the, the imperial, the, the notion of empire is illuminating in some respects and in other respects it, it conveys something that uh, perhaps wasn't always the case, which is effective exploitation of the periphery by the center. Now, how did it, it, it change my, uh, my view of things? I don't know that it did change my overall, because I'm still writing, I'm, I'm writing basically uh, a Russia-centered, I, I tried to decenter it to a degree, but nevertheless, it, it re remains a largely Russia-centered work and I feel as if there are other histories to be written which are, let's, you know, Kazakh-centered, Uzbek-centered, Ukraine-centered, uh, Georgian-centered. In fact, Georgian would be really interesting, wouldn't it? Because, you know, the Georgians were doing so well uh, under Stalin and then they weren't doing so well. Uh, I mean, you know, they were less favored, they were less represented in Politburo and, and so on. Uh, I mean, this is this is at the higher political level, but the interplay between that and popular sentiment would be. But I couldn't do that, you know. There are what 15, 16 of them, depending when you take. I, I, and I had 50,000 words, even if I took 60,000. Yeah. Every word a gem. <laughs> um, so um, we have reached uh, the end of the hour. Do we have time for any more questions? Or? Are one there any more questions? Last, last, last one. Yes, there is one more. Um, but it's, um, yes. sorry, you, you sir, because you haven't asked one yet. Whereas this guy has. Um, if we take a step back and look at the, the, the history of the last century, what what place in world history do you think the achievements of the Soviet Union 
Oh, this is a big question. Sorry, let's, think, let's, let's have a grand one to finish with. I mean, I often feel that if you know, the Russian Revolution hadn't succeeded in October and there hadn't been a Soviet Union, even in the, in the form it took, and it may have taken very other different forms due to serendipitous moments at, at others, the, the 20th century would have been an even worse century than it was. But do you... Have you ever thought about that, pondered if, you know, if, if the revolution had failed, what, how the 20th century would have turned out? Yeah, well, does one then assume that Germany wins the war? I mean, the Second World War? Because if one... I mean, I mean it's, it's an impossible question. Yeah. But I'm actually thinking more about, um, at least it, it um, and maybe because of the Second World War, it... it it, the social reforms, a beacon of a sort of utopian idea of, of, success, of success for the left in some form, um, and therefore the reaction that the West had to take, you know, even from the US to um, at these reforms in, in, in the UK and social democracy in Germany, would any of that have happened without the Soviet Union? Well, that, that, yeah, no, that, but that question of influence, I've sometimes thought about it in terms of the welfare state, to go back to that question, because after all, post-Second World War, and in the West, you got a lot of introduction of welfare state with no reference to the Soviet Union, essentially, no overt reference, uh, no obvious kind of influence, no, no, certainly no direct uh, imitating of policies, and yet, and yet, you know, that after all, the Soviet Union had put that on the agenda, they made a claim, and it's, which was, as I've said, partially false uh, for most of the Stalin period, but I don't think that was fully known in the West. So it, it's, it's very hard, I, I mean... I, I, sorry, I shouldn't interrupt, but just with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the absolute uh, steamroller of neoliberalism across the West in, in a way that seems to have been very difficult, difficult to resist, and I wonder if the, that there is some absolute link to the collapse of, of, of an alternative. I've still got North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, you, ca you can't get historians to get too much into, uh, into the... I mean, it's, there are so many what-ifs. So the trouble with a historian trying to think about that is you keep trying to be, to make it concrete, like, you know, which bit, which bit of what happened connected with the Soviet Union should I be looking at? So I, I find it really hard to sort of put, put my mind over all the, the different possibilities implicit in the absence of a Soviet Union. I guess I just can't do it, I have to say. Um, well, um, thank you very much for, for coming. Um, I, I found that fascinating uh, and uh, really um, having just the book is kind of uh, burning in my brain now, so I, I really strongly recommend it to you. Um, and it's there, and the author is here. She might even sign it for you, I imagine. <laughs> um, so if you'd like to join me in, in thanking Sheila for... Um Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.